This book of Ecclesiastes is, is a real interesting book. It's complicated. It's difficult. It really is. But it's something that we need to read. We need to study. We need to get our heads around understanding this book. And here's how I want to start this, this book. Let's just pretend I was a genie right out of a bottle, and I asked you to tell me how you want your life to change. What do you want out of life? What do you wish for? What would you want that you don't currently have? Now, you might come up with uh, an, an answer that most people would. Some of you might say, you know what? I could use a few more bucks, right? I could use a few more bucks. I'm a little saddled uh, with debt. I'm, you know, if I, if I could just get a, a little bit more money, then we can upgrade our lifestyle a little bit and, and we can start, you know, traveling and achieving some of the things that we'd like to achieve. Maybe some of you want better health. Maybe some of you uh, want to accomplish some goals that you've set your heart to. Maybe some of you want to be famous. You're an artist. You have something to contribute, and you want people to, to notice that. Perhaps you want a more solid family. There would be a lot of things that you might have in your wish list, things that you want different about your life. Now, let's say you got everything you wished for. Everything was yours. You left church after we're all done here. You walk out that door, and life is totally different. You get everything you asked for times 100 there is now no need in your life. Would that make your life automatically better? Some of you were saying, well, I'd like to give it a try. I'd like to, you know, I'll go, I'll be the test case, right? This book of Ecclesiastes was written by somebody who had everything. He had everything you can imagine. He had everything you could wish for times 100. He was arguably the richest man who ever has lived. And yet he comes to this conclusion in the pages of Ecclesiastes that life is meaningless. He had it all and came to the conclusion that life is meaningless. And so as we study this book, we're not just studying the perspective of King Solomon, we are asking ourselves the question, so what is the meaning of life? This is the question that everybody asks at some point in their life, everybody. Whether you are a philosopher, an artist, an intellect, an academician, a theologian, or whether you're just a common person like you or I just living life, there are points in life where we ask ourselves that very deep question, so what's the meaning of life? In fact, that meaning of life question is so common, it's become a little bit of a joke. Uh, in fact, I play golf with uh, Ryan Beaver. He's our children's pastor here every Friday, and sometimes when he hits a bad shot, he's like, what's the meaning of it all? What's the meaning of life? It's just kind of funny, right? What's the meaning of life? It's so common that it's actually a little bit of a joke, but it is a very real question that all of us at some point ask, what's the purpose of my existence? This is the question of humanity. And Solomon writes the book of Ecclesiastes. He is now at the end of his life. He's achieved all this wealth, everything you could wish for, everything you can ask for, everything you can imagine. He got, and yet here is his conclusion. Here is the sum total of life according to King Solomon. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, Everything is meaningless. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> Welcome to it. Let's close in prayer. That's his conclusion. Now, you might think to yourself, well, that seems pretty odd. That's in the Bible? That's in the Bible. If you didn't know a lot about the Bible and somebody just read the book of Ecclesiastes to you, you would think, wow, that's a depressing nightmare. Certainly that's not in the Bible. I mean, it, it feels like it doesn't belong. That's why some commentators, in fact, many commentators over the centuries that have written about the Bible, they skip Ecclesiastes. They don't want to do it. It is so complicated. It, frankly, is depressing. It's morose. It is negative. That's going to be our next three weeks. 
And uh, when we were having this discussion about what we study next, um, in our little staff group, we asked, well, why are we doing this three weeks before Easter? Well, there's a few reasons. It's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. So it's there for a reason. And we're going to discover what that reason is. Even today, we'll know why it's in the Bible. Ecclesiastes is raw. It is real, which is a good thing, right? There could be a tendency for us to just kind of polish over things. Religion loves to polish over things. How are you doing? Fine. Oh, great. Everything's great, 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 great. Well, sometimes it's not so great. It is this raw, just vomit of negativity. That's what Ecclesiastes is, right? I encourage you to read it. (laughs) It is just this negative deal, but it's there for a reason, raw and real and relatable. It's relatable. We all struggle with these questions of life. Every single one of us has Ecclesiastes moments, right? And it's actually a perfect lead up into Easter. What is Easter? Easter is life after death. Easter is light out of darkness, right? And so we're going to get a little bit dark and a little bit complicated for the next three weeks leading up to Easter. It's a perfect setup for the wonder and the glory of Easter. And the reality is pretty simple. Life is difficult and complicated sometimes. Life is difficult and complicated sometimes. There it is. And so the book of Ecclesiastes is difficult and complicated, Let's just get into it. Let's dive into it. And I guarantee it's going to be a good experience together. It's going to be a good experience. Now, all of us have had Ecclesiastes moments, all of us. So this isn't just about King Solomon's end-of-life kind of memoir that's really, you know, negative and dark. It's really for all of us. It's for all of us. We've all had Ecclesiastes moments. If you've ever been tired of the same old routine reloaded over and over again day after day, then you've had an Ecclesiastes moment. If you just are kind of tired of waking up, eating something, commuting, going to work, commuting, eating, sleeping, waking up, eating, commuting, if you're just tired of that, you've had an Ecclesiastes moment. If you have ever thought that life goes by so fast, you know, you blink and it's gone, all of a sudden your kids are older, then you've had an Ecclesiastes moment. If tragedy has struck your family and it's caught you off guard and it doesn't make sense, you've had an Ecclesiastes moment. If the world just doesn't make sense to you with all of the injustice and oppression and pain of the world and it just doesn't make any sense, then you've had an Ecclesiastes moment. If you've become maybe just a little cynical, just a little critical, and just a little negative, you've had an Ecclesiastes moment. If you feel like you give and you give and you give and you don't get much in return, you've had an Ecclesiastes moment. If you feel like your life is just kind of an insignificant speck among a sea of people floating on the third rock around the sun in a fairly meaningless spiral galaxy in a huge universe, and you're just this little insignificant thing, and who's going to notice you five minutes after you're dead? Then you've had an Ecclesiastes moment. These are the very real feelings that all of us have at some point in life, and some of us have these feelings a lot in life. Ecclesiastes deals with them head on in a very raw and real environment, and so what do we do with those feelings? That's what we'll talk about. Let's get into it here. First, we have to understand the word meaningless. This is the key word of the book of Ecclesiastes. It is used 39 times. It is nearly the obsession of King Solomon. He's constantly talking about the meaninglessness of life. Keep in mind that the Bible is an English translation of copies of the original language, right? So we have to understand the original language and context in order to understand uh, the Bible. The Hebrew word meaningless is a word havel, havel. There's been a lot of discussion about this word havel. Havel isn't necessarily meaningless the way we think of meaningless. When we use the word meaningless, we think utterly without purpose. 
utterly without purpose. That's not exactly the nuance of the word havel in Hebrew. The word havel in Hebrew is this. We just experienced havel. It's a mist, it's a vapor. And yes, some of you are laughing, this is my daughter's hairspray, and yes, I use it because the thinner I get here, the more product I need. So that's just the way it is. That's havel, it's just a mist, just a mist, right? It comes and it goes. Uh, another translation of the word havel would, would mean, would be mere breath. So if I had a mirror up here and I did one of these, what would you see? A little bit of fog and then it would disappear. Here, then gone. Born and die. That's havel. That's life according to King Solomon. The second most used word in the book of Ecclesiastes is wind, specifically chasing after wind. That, that phrase, chasing after wind, literally in Hebrews means herding wind, the way we would say herding cats. And when we say, oh, that's like herding cats, we laugh, ha, 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 because herding cats would be very silly. That's the same phrase here. It, it's herding the wind. And so King Solomon says, all of life is trying to herd wind. We're making all this effort in our work and with our family and, and, and with our stuff. We're making all this effort to kind of organize and make life what we want it. But we can't. It's just like herding cats. It's like herding the wind. It cannot happen. And so at the end of Solomon's life, this very wealthy and very wise man, likeliest, the, the, the most wealthy and most wise man to have ever lived at the end of his life, he says life is Havel. Life is a living Havel, you could say. I thought that was funny. All right. It just literally popped in my head and it'll never happen again. It's just this vapor. It's like hurting the wind. You, you can't do it. He's frustrated. He's depressed. He's angry. He's in a dark place. And I'm telling you, if we're not careful, life will be an exhausting, meaningless chasing after nothing. What happened to Solomon can happen to all of us. If we're not careful, life will pass by. We will be chasing all kinds of things. Whether we get them or not is not the issue. But we'll be chasing after things that don't bring meaning. They don't bring purpose. They don't satisfy the soul. If we're not careful, life will be an exhausting, meaningless chasing after nothing. Second thing we need to understand besides the, the word meaningless and wind is we need to understand Solomon's life. That life is a vapor, but from his perspective, we can understand exactly why he felt so deeply about the meaninglessness that he experienced. Solomon was chasing everything under the sun. In fact, that's the third most common phrase in Ecclesiastes is chasing under the sun. Chasing everything you could see, chasing everything you could feel and touch and experience. He was chasing everything under the sun and he got it. He got it all. He was very powerful. He was a regional power. The nation of Israel at the time, this was 3,000 years ago, 1,000 years before Christ, was a regional power from the border of Egypt all the way up to near Turkey. He had all of it. And that's not a huge country by modern standards, but it's where everything met, everything converged. North and south went through Solomon's territory. East and west went through Solomon's territory. So even though the country itself wasn't huge, it had huge influence and he had huge power which means he had enormous prosperity. He was arguably the richest man who ever lived. In fact, if you did the math around the Second Chronicles 9 passage, which describes his wealth, and many people who have way too much time on their hands, analyzed Second Chronicles 9 in terms of modern day wealth, he would easily be the top 10 wealthiest people to have ever lived. 
and you add that with this global power that he was 3,000 years ago, probably the most influential and powerful man who has ever lived. He had 700 wives and 300 mistresses. You think after about 400 wives, they would just all be mistresses? I mean, I, no, I'm a wife. Oh, I'm, I'm a mistress. What's the difference? All right. It just sounds exhausting to me. But he pursued every possible pleasure. He had servants uh, to tend to his every need. He had land, vineyards, chariots, and livestock. He had fame. The entire world knew him. In fact, kings and queens would come to him because he was so wise. He asked for one thing from God, wisdom. He was so wise, kings and queens would come to him to seek his wisdom and problems they were having in their own country, including the queen of Sheba. That's right, very famous story between her, she and, uh, and Solomon. He was, he was incredibly wise, so much so that the world would come to his feet. In fact, he says this in Ecclesiastes 1. I applied my mind to study and explore wisdom and all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. There he says it again. And he says this after amassing everything the human heart could possibly desire. Imagine in one person the absolute power of Kim Jong-un, the trillions in wealth from the Saudi empire, the global influence of the president of the United States, the brilliance of Stephen Hawking, the pleasure of Hugh Hefner, the gluttony of Johnny Depp, the reputation of Bill Gates, and the fame of the Kardashians all in one person. That's King Solomon. Everything we could wish for, ask for, or imagine, he had it times a hundred. Here's 2 Chronicles 9. Just gives you a, an outline of his wealth. The weight of gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. That is $1.5 billion in modern terms of gold given to him every single year. This does not include the, the revenue from taxation that he laid upon the Hebrews, does not include the revenue brought in by merchants and traders. Also, all of the kings of Arabia and governors of the territories brought gold and silver to Solomon. Uh, the king made a great throne covered in ivory and overlaid with pure gold. Nothing like it had ever been built uh, in any other kingdom. All King Solomon's goblets were gold. All of his armor was gold. The armor of his generals were all gold, including the shields. All of the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were gold. Every bit of furniture in the palace of Lebanon was gold. The king had a fleet of trading ships. Every three years, they traveled the world, carried gold and silver back, along with ivory, apes, and baboons. You talk about wealth? I want some baboons. I need more baboons. Fleets of ships would go to wherever he wanted and bring back whatever he wanted. All the uh, kings of the earth sought audiences with Solomon to hear the wisdom that God put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, silver, gold, robes, weapons, spices, horses, and mules. Think of horses as sick cars. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots, 12,000 horses, which he kept in chariot cities, also with him in Jerusalem. He ruled over all the kings from Euphrates to the land of the Philistines as far south as the border of Egypt. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. That's the wealth of Solomon. Ecclesiastes actually describes his wealth as well. He says, I, I achieved all the wealth you could possibly imagine. I achieved everything you could possibly imagine. He even tried cheering himself with wine and embracing folly. In other words, he's a man of wisdom. He's a man of intelligence. He's a man of achievement. But he says, hey, let's try self-medication and being goofy, right? Let's try drunkenness. Let's try partying. 
He wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. He undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I want to show you an artist's rendering of one of his houses up in the Lebanon forests. That's Solomon's house. Just to give you an idea of what that house is like, it took 153,000 workers seven years to build the temple of God. It took those same workers 13 years to build one of his houses. That's the wealth of King Solomon. I bought male and female slaves and other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all of this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. I took delight in my labor, and this was the reward of all my toil. Here's his conclusion. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. It's all meaningless. It's all folly. It's all vanity. Everything. Even though Solomon had everything the heart of a man could desire, he became a grumpy old man. Just a grumpy old king, just negative and cynical and critical of everything. He hated his life and thought everything was meaningless. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, in light of King Solomon and in light of this book of Ecclesiastes, we have to ask ourselves the question, what are we chasing? What are we chasing? Now, we, we may not be chasing all the same things that Solomon chased. I'm hoping you're not chasing 700 wives and 300 mistresses or husbands and whatever they're called. I don't know what the male equivalent, let's make a word up today, just not publicly, private. What are we chasing? Are we chasing pleasure? Are we chasing things? What are we chasing? Are we chasing the same things that Solomon chased? Are we chasing reputation? Are we chasing fame? What is it that we're chasing? Because if we're chasing the same things Solomon chased, we're gonna come up with the same conclusion at the end of our life, that it's meaningless, that it's vanity, that it's worthless, and we don't wanna do that. I'm looking around this audience right here. This is a very young, hip, good-looking boy. Look at you, you got crazy good stuff going on. Look at this crew, it's amazing. It's not too late for you. <laughs> I'm the old guy in this room. I'm 50 years old and I'm doing some thinking myself. 50 years old, my life is kind of cresting and I hate to even imagine this, but my life is kind of cresting right now. And, and I don't really like it. There's some deep and meaningful things that come as a result, but life's kind of cresting. I'm going to have a college graduate for a daughter here in, in, in no time. I, I can't believe I'm old enough to have a college graduate as a daughter. She's about to get engaged. I guess these days you do a lot of planning for engagement so you can plan for weddings. But uh, she's, they're planning on getting engaged. And so uh, that's just the way it goes. I can't believe I'm old enough to think about having a daughter getting married. My twin boys, you know, my buddies, they're going off to college this fall and they're going to different colleges. I mean, they've spent every waking moment, including in utero together, and they're leaving the house and going off to different colleges. And we're thinking about downsizing. I mean, I can't even believe we're thinking about downsizing. I like the upsizing, I like the achievement, I like the growth, that's what I like, right? This idea of cresting 
and then possibly using the word downsizing. I mean, I just can't get my head around it, right? Because what does downsizing mean? It just means it, that slides. It just keeps going, right? Body breaking down. I, uh, I grew up throwing footballs with my boys, and uh, we went out there to the field and, and on Thanksgiving. So this is forever ago on Thanksgiving, and I threw a ball to my son and threw my arm out, and it's still thrashed. It's been Thanksgiving. I'm almost 50 years old. This arm's shot. doesn't work anymore. It's gone. And we're cresting and downsizing. It's like, that doesn't feel right, right? But what does Solomon say? All of that, the upsizing, the cresting, the downsizing, it's all Havel. There it is, and there it goes. Just the way it is. It's just the way it is. So we have to ask ourselves, during that mist, during that breath, what are we chasing? If we're chasing what Solomon chased, we will end up as Solomon ended up. Miserable, critical, meaningless. He had it all, but meant nothing. So we're going to end our time today with a little ray of light. There's only a few rays of light in the book of Ecclesiastes. That's why we're only doing this in three weeks. If this was an 11 week, it'd be a slog fest and depressed and we may not make it. But we're going to pull a few bits of light out of this book of Ecclesiastes. And here's one of them. Ecclesiastes 3.12. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This is a gift of God. This is the verse where this very famous phrase comes from. You know the phrase, eat, drink, and be merry. A couple chapters later, Solomon puts a little more detail on it. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. (laughs) He says it in Ecclesiastes. We die like the animals and who knows what happens. I mean, it's, it's a lot of fun reading that book. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. Now, if we're going to eat, drink, and be merry like Solomon, we're going to end up with a meaningless life. But the little ray of light in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is he says, there is a way to enjoy life that truly is meaningful and grounded in God. He only uses the word God a couple of times. And whenever he uses the word God, it's like, oh, yeah, I know I should have done that. But I didn't. So here I am. God wants us to eat, drink, and be merry. He wants us to love this life. In fact, just to put it really simply, it's okay to enjoy life. It's okay to enjoy life. I know sometimes in religious circles, it's like anything that's fun or anything that's joyful, oh, that's sin, you can't do that. Well, that's not exactly the case. God gave us life as a gift. Solomon says that this life is a gift. And, and working and earning and spending, it's good, enjoy it. It's, it's a good thing to work. It's a good thing to earn. It's a good thing to spend. Just be generous, just be kind. Think of others, give some away, save some, be smart, right? Just don't chase after the things that Solomon chased for. Chase after something different. Chase after things that give life and purpose and meaning to to this world that God gave us. Here's another little bit of reality here. This might be a shock to some of you who grew up in church, but followers of God do not need to be grumpy. (laughs) Somebody over is like, what? (laughs) We don't need to be grumpy. We should be the happiest, most content people alive. But boy, you look at, at, well, Christianity out there is pretty grumpy sometimes. It's like, just get with it, snap out of it. Come on, look at this life that God gave us. It's a gift, especially a life like ours. And let's just get real. We live in Temecula Marietta Valley. I mean, it's like paradise, it's Disneyland here. No No grumpy or complaining allowed. I mean, oh my gosh, this is tough weather right there, oh wow. 
I mean, we have this life that's a precious gift. Now, yes, it's not perfect. Life, nobody here has a perfect life. We don't have all the money we want. We don't have all the health we want. We don't have necessarily the family bliss that we want. There are challenges, right? There's no question. But if we were to just get a little bit of a grip, and as Solomon says, if we would learn to enjoy life now, then things really become very meaningful and things become very profound if we enjoy now. Solomon's problem was that he was chasing he was chasing the future. If only I had this power, if only I had this money, if I only had another 700 wives, if only I had, I mean, just if only, if only, just chasing, chasing, chasing. That chase is exhausting. What Solomon is encouraging us to do in a moment of clarity, which comes very, very rarely in the book of Ecclesiastes, in a moment of clarity, he says, stop and enjoy life now because it goes that fast. I'm telling you, as a near 50-year-old human being, I've got you know, enough uh, youth behind me to have learned a couple lessons, and I have a lot more to go to learn some more lessons. But as a 50-year-old, I'm reflective enough to be able to say a lot of time blew by chasing after the wind. And I'm starting to learn a little bit more that I can enjoy the moment. And if I enjoy the moment, now get me here, this is the, this is the big takeaway. If I can enjoy the moment, and if you can enjoy the moment that you're in right now, time itself will slow down. Time is just an experience, right? If we are just chasing the next, the next, the next and never enjoy the moment, we are blowing by time about what could be instead of thanking God for what we have right now and enjoying the moment right now. And I'm telling you, you can start with lunch. Whatever you're doing for lunch, if you're going to a restaurant, just don't take my seat, wherever, if you're going home, um, whatever, enjoy that lunch. Let's just start here. Enjoy that lunch. And whatever is in front of you, don't just next, you know. There's a meal in front of you. I'm being serious. Enjoy that meal, whatever it is. I don't care if it's a California burrito, as though that's a negative thing. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. It's actually a miracle of heaven. <laughs> California burrito. Enjoy that burrito. Don't just enjoy every bite. Say, I'm, I'm serious. You, time will slow down. I believe we can live twice as long. Same number of minutes, but we can live twice as long if we just enjoy that California burrito. And then you're having lunch with somebody. If you're not having lunch with somebody, you have lunch with us. You're going to be with people over lunch. Look them in the eye. Care about them. Enjoy that conversation. Not just, where are we going to now? We got to... Enjoy the moment, and time itself will slow down. Finally, Ecclesiastes 3.14, I know that everything God does will endure forever. What God does is love. What we do is chase. It's as simple as that. Solomon says, I spent my whole life chasing after wind, herding cats, and it was meaningless. The things that God does endure forever, and what God does is love. He loves us. He's proven that by the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. We're going to celebrate this up to level 11 over Easter. The gift of the cross of Christ to forgive sin, the resurrection of Christ to forgive eternal life. There's nothing that separates us from God. We're going to enjoy being loved by God. That's what lasts forever, God's love. God's love received and God's love given. If we could spend our life loving the way we are loved by God, then that's a life of meaning, of purpose, of power. It's profound. You will not, at the end of your life, be a grumpy old man like Solomon going, it was all meaningless and went by like that. If you live a life of receiving love and giving love, life is going to slow down. It'll be rich, 
meaningful, powerful, and profound, and the letter you write at the end of your life will be one that is full, that blesses the world, not a grumpy old man sitting on a rocking chair writing Ecclesiastes. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for this book. It is totally different than any other book in the Bible. It is, it is negative, it is dark and morose and depressing, but it's there for a very specific reason. You show us through the example of King Solomon how not to live and how not to think. We should not live our lives chasing after the wind, chasing after every pleasure, chasing after gain, prosperity, power, prominence. God, those things are are fine to work and to earn and to spend. They're fine. They're good. But God, what we're chasing after should be the things that endure. As Solomon admits uh, late in chapter 3, to invest our lives in, in the things that you are doing. And what you are doing is, is loving. What you are doing is kind. What you are doing is forgiving. You are at work in this world that you love so much. It is a broken world, but you are at, at work. You are bringing grace. You are bringing kindness. You are bringing justice. These are the things that endure. So God, I pray that as we go through this mini-series before Easter, that, that there would be a profound journey taking place in each one of us that those things that we are chasing that are in fact wind, we would no longer chase. We would chase the things that endure. We would chase the things that are not Havel, this mist that comes and goes. We would chase the things of love and mercy and justice, bettering this world, living for the the benefit of others, uh, serving those who are in need, being generous with what we've been given. God, as we do those things, focus on love, grace, and kindness, time itself will slow down and we will enjoy a very rich, very meaningful life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.